Well, I'm going to pull a play right from Robin Abadie's preaching playbook and start off by referencing um, an obscure 80s or 90s TV show that I used to love. Uh, did any of y'all know the TV show that's going to pop up on the screen, Are You Afraid of the Dark? Good. Because I've been asking people and everyone's like, never heard of it. I'm like, man, this could really fall flat. There we go. Um, so when I was a kid in the 90s, I really enjoyed this TV show. And I think this TV show, and even the title, if you've never seen the show, uh, speaks to this reality of every single human. I think there's this universal fear that humans have of the dark. Are you afraid of the dark? This universal fear that we have of the dark. And as I've been thinking about this this week, as I've been thinking about this old TV show, as I've been thinking about this passage from Jesus, I'm wondering if the deeper reality of the fear that we all have of the dark, the deeper reality behind that is the reverse. And the reverse is a longing for the light. Because the light exposes what's real about things, the reality of things, what's true about things. This is why most kids, and maybe many of us as adults, sleep with nightlights in our room. Just yesterday, Graham, who's my um, two, almost three-year-old son, uh, while I was still in bed, he came to the side of my bed, and he said, Daddy, Daddy, wake up, come see, come see. Uh, he said, come to my room, come see, and he wanted to show me something. And as we were going up the stairs, he told me that there's um, a tail from a monster coming out of his closet. Uh, which, this happens somewhat regularly. We have to keep his closet door closed. Uh, so he won't get confused by hangers and clothes and think that they're monsters. Um, so he says, there's a tail, there's a tail, a tail from a monster. And so we go into his room and he points at it and I hold him up so he can point exactly what he's, what he's trying to show me. And I said, Graham, that's, that's not a tail from a monster, that's a shadow. And he, no, no, it's, it's, it's a tail. And so we turned on the light and immediately he saw that it's just a shadow. The light exposes the truth about things. It shows us what's really there. And so what we're going to see this morning is that this I am statement from Jesus, I am the light of the world, is really good, comforting, sweet news for all of us, whether you consider yourself a follower of Jesus or not. And we're going to hone, we're going to, we're going to dig really deep into just one verse, verse 12. So let's read it again, uh, John chapter 8, verse 12. Again, Jesus spoke to them, saying, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. I am the light of the world. These are seven words that are jammed packed with significance. So we're going to dig really deep by breaking it down into a couple parts. First, I am these two seemingly simple words we started to unpack last week. And then second, the light of the world. So first, Jesus starts this statement in a really simple way. I am. How many times have you probably even said that today? These two simple, used all the time words, I am. Let me show you. Uh, there's more going on beneath the surface here. Robin unpacked this for us a bit last week as well. Um, so Jesus is speaking, as Jesus is teaching, as Jesus is having conversation in the first century, Jesus is speaking what language? Aramaic. 
Aramaic. Y'all can, y'all can speak up, all right? <laughs> and it's okay if you miss it. There's grace here, Christ City Church. Um, Jesus is speaking Aramaic as he's going around the first century world, as he's teaching, as he's preaching, as he's having conversation with his friends, with his disciples, with his enemies. Jesus is speaking in Aramaic. But John and the rest of the New Testament is written in what language? Greek. Thank you. Uh, We're getting there. A little more awake as the morning progresses. Um, John's writing in Greek. The reason that's important is because John is remembering the things that Jesus is teaching in Aramaic. John is remembering these oral stories that were passed down among Jewish people and among uh, Gentile Christians who were converting to follow Jesus. John's recording those things in Greek. He's taking them from Aramaic and putting them in Greek, which means that John is probably being intentional and thoughtful with the way he's writing and recording things. Are you with me so far? So these two words, I am, this is how John records them in Greek. Does anybody remember from last week when, when Robin taught on this? Yeah, ego, a me. Ego, a me. It's where we get our word ego. Um, ego, a me. The reason that I want to show you this and the reason that this is significant is because ego means I. Ego means I. And a me means I am. I am. All over the Greek New Testament and other literature throughout the Greek-speaking and Greek-writing world, um, a me shows up without ego, okay? Ego is not necessary, but John puts it here. The reason that John puts it here is to grab our attention. There's something important happening here. Don't gloss over this. It's like John writing ego a me or I am in all caps. This is his way of emphasizing it, of making it emphatic. Don't miss this. I am. There's something important happening here. And we see that there must be something important happening here at the end of this chapter, at the end of this conversation that Jesus has with um, religious leaders in the temple at the Feast of Booths. The end of this conversation at John 8, let me show you what happens. Jesus uses these seemingly simple words again, and John says once again, ego a me at the end of chapter 8. Let me read it for you in verses 56 through 59. So he's sort of... Jesus is just teaching, like he's not doing anything, and the religious leaders are arguing with him. And so they bring up Abraham, and here's what what Jesus says in verse 56. Your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it, and he was glad. So the Jews who are listening to Jesus are confused, because Abraham was on the scene more than a thousand years before this time, and Jesus is saying, Abraham rejoiced to see my day, and he saw it and was glad. It's sort of confusing, right? So they say to him, you are not yet 50 years old, and have you seen Abraham? Listen to how Jesus responds. Truly, truly, amen, amen, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. Ego, me. Before Abraham was, I am. And look at how his listeners respond. So they picked up stones to throw at him, but Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple. So it sounds so innocent and so simple, 
But when Jesus uses it in this way, before Abraham was, I am, ego, me. His listeners experience such offense and rage that they immediately move to kill him, to murder him. There's something big going on here. The rest of the New Testament authors continue to develop this idea, and it was developed throughout the first few centuries of the Christian church. Let me show you, I'm still a Bible nerd on you, so stick, this is so good. Let me show you this in Romans chapter 10. Paul does this, Peter does this as well in his sermon that he's preaching on the day of Pentecost. It's recorded in Acts 2. So Romans 10, if you grew up in the church, is probably a familiar passage Um, Paul is laying out in Romans 10, he's writing to the church at Rome, and he's laying out the good news that the message of Jesus is for all people, not just Jews, it's for all people. And in verse 9, he says, a verse, again, if you grew up in the church, you're probably familiar with, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, and you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, what Paul is doing here is shocking and even dangerous because Paul here in writing and penning and um, sending in this letter to the church at Rome, this is, this is a deeply political statement. Jesus is Lord because Paul is saying Jesus is Lord and the emperor is not. Deeply political statement. Tremendously dangerous. Incredibly shocking what Paul is doing here because it's such a dangerous political statement. But it's not only a political statement, it's also a dangerous religious statement. Because later on in Romans chapter 10, where Paul is laying out the idea that Jesus is Lord, that's the context, Paul quotes this Old Testament verse uh, that comes from the book of Joel, a minor prophet, uh, one of those books that if you're trying to find it in your Bible, if you're trying to follow along with me, you're going to have a hard time finding it. It's, it's very small. Uh, Paul quotes um, Joel chapter 2, verse 32. Let me show you. First Romans 10, 13. Paul writes this. It's going to be on the screen. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. This is a word-for-word exact quote from Joel 2, 32. Paul takes Hebrew in Joel and writes it in Greek in Romans. You with me? Let's look at, this is the, this is the bomb. This is, this is good. Let's look at Joel on the screen as well. Joel 2.32, and it shall come to pass that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Now, this is the sort of game that I play with my uh, two-year-old. I'm like, look at these two pictures, and what do you see that's different, okay? Um, what do you see that's different about these two, these two verses? Well, the first thing I see is the difference in the way that Lord is written. Do you see that? Um, So Lord, you may have seen it if you've read much of the Old Testament. Um, Sometimes when that word appears in your English Old Testament, uh, it'll be like capital L and then capital but smaller capital O-R-D. Have you ever seen that? Um, The English translators are trying to tell you something. What they're trying to tell you there is that the Hebrew word behind the Lord here is what? Yahweh. Yahweh. Which is how God introduces himself 
to Moses in Exodus chapter 3 when God shows up as a burning bush. It's what Robin showed us last week. Moses says, who should I tell the Egyptians and the Hebrew people, who should I tell has sent me? Who who, who are you? How should should I say your name? And um, the Lord replies, Yahweh, I am who I am, or I am that I am, Yahweh. This, we don't, we miss the significance of this, but this is so huge. Paul, in Romans 10, Peter, in Acts chapter 2, they're saying here that Jesus is Lord, capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D. Jesus is Yahweh. Do you see that? In John chapter 8, and in these I am statements that we're looking at for the next few weeks, Jesus is saying, I am the light of the world, and there's something big and bold and significant about those two seemingly simple words, I am. So Jesus says with some divinity behind him, I am the light of the world. Um, The light of the world, this has been a a phrase, an idea, um, a metaphor for God that's been really sweet to me for some time. There are a lot of things that we can unpack here, a lot of different things we could look at, but I want to show you two things. Uh, about Jesus being light of the world that I think are particularly important for us right now. The first thing is that the light exposes what the darkness hides. The light exposes what the darkness hides. And the second thing is there's life in the light. There's life in the light. First, the light exposes what the darkness hides. I think when I say this, when, when we talk about this, the light exposes what the darkness hides. I think you know intuitively, if you'll let yourself, you feel deep down in yourself what I mean. The light exposes what the darkness hides. Because we all know that there's darkness out there, right? We hear about it we read stories, we see it with our own eyes that there's darkness out there. We know intuitively, again, whether you follow Jesus or not, that what Jesus says in John chapter 3, a few chapters earlier, is true. In his conversation with Nicodemus, Jesus says, the light has come into the world, and people loved the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. We know that darkness is reality and that the darkness hides evil, scary, bad things. And we have this longing in our soul for those things to be exposed. Over the past week and a half, I've felt this in, um, in a bigger way. And most of you are, are right there with me. Um, As over the past week and a half, we've come face to face with the tragic, sad, and true reality that darkness exists even in our churches. That even among Christian leaders and pastors, there is hiding and isolating. There are half-truths and myths-truths. 
We've come face to face with that. And I, and you as well, I'm sure, I felt such deep anger and sadness as I've encountered those realities. We wonder things like, will there be justice for victims? Will justice come where we only see injustice? I think about this line that shows up in the Lord of the Rings story. Will all that is sad come untrue? We wonder that. Will, will all the things that we run into in life that are sad and that are tragic, will all of those things come untrue? And Jesus here, telling us that he's the light of the world, answers for us in the affirmative. Because right now, right now it's like we're living perpetually in this state of it being dawn. Um, like if you ever wake up really early and it's still dark outside, but it's starting to grow a little bit lighter, there's still shadows, there's still things that are hidden, you may still need a flashlight. But slowly, and if you watch it, if you stay with it the whole time, you see just how slowly it seems to happen and how slowly time seems to pass. Slowly the sun rises and the light grows progressively brighter as the darkness grows progressively weaker. We're living in, in a perpetual state of dawn where there's still darkness, there's still shadows, the light isn't fully shining yet and exposing all the things that the darkness hides. But we know, because of what Jesus says here, that the light has come. The light of the world has come. And we know that the light will come again. And one day it will be like the noonday sun where all the shadows will go away. There's no need for a flashlight. There's no need for this um, manufactured sort of light because the true light is there and it's exposing all the things that the darkness hides. We know that they will come and we long for it and we look forward to it. So we wonder, will there be justice? Will justice come where we only see injustices? And we know because Jesus is coming, because Jesus is coming back, the light of the world, we know that the promise is true that Amos wrote, that Martin Luther King Jr. Uh, preached, that justice will roll down like waters. Um, we know that, yes, all that is sad will come untrue. The light of the world has come, and the light of the world is coming back. The darkness will expose all the things that the, the light will expose all the things that the darkness hides. And that's really good news. I have this longing for that to be true, and I know that you do as well. But... Here's the really hard part about this. Um, it's sweet, it's comforting, it's good, it's true. But the challenge here is, 
I think the light will go forth into the world. I think the light will continue to shine and continue to expose the things that the darkness hides as the light shines in the darkness here and here. As we work this out and as we live this out personally, as individuals, as followers of Jesus, the light will go forth and will shine more and more into the world. For the scary things out there to be exposed for what they really are, the scary things in here have to be exposed for what they really are. And this is really scary. <laughs> because the word, even, even the word expose, the word expose is, is so scary. It's really cool right now, it's really hip to, um, to talk about vulnerability and being exposed and living honestly but you know if you've ever experienced it that it's a lot easier to talk about it than it is to actually live it, right? I'm reading right now um, an old novel by Stephen King uh, that got turned into a movie and it apparently is like one of the top 25 horror films of all time. Um, I'm reading this book called The Shining. Has anyone read it? A few people. It's a bad idea. <laughs> don't read this book. Um, I'm loving it, and at the same time, I'm hating it. Uh, I, oh, man, it is, it's horrifying. I didn't know that reading a book could be such a scary experience, but it is. For some reason, I read this book as I'm falling asleep at night, which is, which, which is a really bad idea. Like, hopefully you pick up some things from what I'm saying this morning, uh, but hopefully you don't pick this up. Like, don't do this. But uh, I was reading this book, and this one line stood, stood out to me. Um, if you've read the book, if you see the story, if you've seen the movie, then you know. And if you haven't, um, spoiler alert, but it's been like 30, 40-something years, so like you've had your time. Uh, so you know that there's a little boy in the movie whose name is Danny. Um, I think Danny was the original like uh, creepy kid in a scary movie, right? And so Danny has this weird ability, it's called The Shining, uh, to kind of know things that are happening beneath the surface. Like he can sort of read what's going on uh, behind the scenes, behind all the layers. And so he's, um, he and his mom are together uh, and they're driving into town and there's this scene about where she's just wanting to be really honest with Dan Danny. Like we just need, we need to be really honest with one another so that we know all the things that are going on here. Because there are some weird things happening and we need to get it out in the air. We need to get it out in the open. And so they're talking, and the mom is being really open and vulnerable. And because Danny can kind of read what's going on behind the scenes, she's even more exposed. Like, he's seeing things that she's not even speaking. And so uh, the mom says this. She describes the way she's feeling uh, by saying that uh, she felt more naked than naked. She felt more naked than naked. She felt exposed. She felt vulnerable. And it was a scary thing. Do you know what that's like? Have you ever experienced that? If you haven't, if you don't know what that's like, then my challenge for you would be that maybe there are still dark corners in your life that have yet to be exposed to the light. This is so scary because we all have this, this basic need and desire as human beings for connection. Um, 
all PhD scholars and therapists, they talk about this as being one of the most fundamental needs that humans have. Brene Brown says, uh, one of the most fundamental needs that we have is connection with other people. Um, Chip Dodd, someone that you've heard of here at Christ City, says that uh, the primary needs that we have as humans are the needs to belong and to matter. We need to connect with one another, and we need to connect with God. And exposure, vulnerability, is so scary because it threatens that basic human desire and need that you have, even if you don't know that you have it. Vulnerability, exposure, threatens that. Like, what if I really share that story? How would my spouse, my close friend, my pastor, how would, how would they react to that? Like, would they reject me? Would it be another story in my life of abandonment? Exposure, shining the light in these areas, threatens that fundamental human need that you have. What happens if I really open up about that hurt, that tragic thing that I did, or that tragic thing that was done to me, that sin that, I just, that just keeps, keeps coming up in my life and the damage that it's having in my relationships? What if, what if I was really honest about that? Listen to this quote from Brene Brown. I've put it in your bulletin so you can take it home. It's so good, so powerful. This is what she writes. Owning our story can be hard, scary, but it's not nearly as difficult as spending our lives running from it. Embracing our vulnerabilities is risky, but not nearly as dangerous as giving up on love and belonging and joy, the experience that actually make us the most vulnerable. Only when we are brave enough to explore the darkness will we discover the infinite power of our light. Only when we are brave enough to explore the darkness will we discover the infinite power of our light. You have this fear of losing your life. If I were to really share this, it would threaten this thing that's most basic to me, my need to connect my need to belong, my need to matter. You fear losing your life. You fear that exposure is going to bring that. You fear that the light, if it were to really shine and expose the deepest, darkest, darkest corners, then you would lose your life. But what Brene Brown says here and what Jesus says as well is, you may lose your life in a sense, but you'll really gain your life. You'll gain your life because in the light there is life. In the light, there is life. Let's look at the second half of this verse. John 8, verse 12. Jesus said to them, I am the light of the world. And then he says this, whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. They won't walk in darkness, but they'll have the light of life. Now, Throughout the book of John, there are these two themes that seem to run parallel to each other. And as you peel back the layers, you start to see some profound things that are happening. Light and life. In John 1.4, right at the beginning of the gospel, John says this, in him, Jesus, the word of God, in him was life. And the life was the light of men. Light and life. 
This word life shows up all over the place in John's gospel, 47 times. In fact, the very end of his book, John, this is really kind of him, he gives us his thesis statement in just one sentence. Really good, really good writing. His uh, English 101 professor would be proud. Here's what he says in John 20. These things are written, in other words, I've written this gospel for you, so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life, you may have life in his name. What John wants for us, and I believe what Jesus wants for us too, is life. As, um, as modern Western Christians, um, oftentimes the thing that we think of most, the telos, the end, the target that we're moving towards, the thing that comes to mind for us is, is heaven. Heaven only shows up a few times in the book of John. And most of the time when heaven shows up, it's about Jesus coming down from heaven to earth. The light of God coming down into the darkness. But what shows up over and over and over and over and over and over is this idea of life. I've come that you may have life and have it abundantly, rich, full, deep life. This is what Jesus wants for us, that you would not walk in darkness, but that you would experience, that you would have the life of life. So let me show you why I think for John, these two, these two themes always run parallel to one another. Um, life, or light, light is an important theme throughout Scripture. Light is an important theme throughout Scripture. Um, and it's, it's interesting right from the very beginning. Let me show you this. In Genesis chapter 1, verse 3, in the creation story, the creation account, uh, the writer of Genesis says this, and God said, let there be light, and there was light. God said, let there be light, and there was light. Here's the thing that's really um, baffling. It's hard to wrap your mind around. This is day one of creation. God said, let there be light, and there was light. The sun and the moon, which the author of Genesis says are the sources of light, were not created until day four. So there's light, but there's no source for light. What in the world is going on here? If you fast forward to the very end of the story, in Revelation 21, verse 23, this is what John, the apostle John, also wrote Revelation, this is what he says. And the city, the city that is to come, the new Jerusalem that will come down from heaven, the new heavens and the new earth, the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light, and its lamp is the Lamb. In the beginning, there's no need for a manufactured source of light because God himself was the light and its lamp was the lamb. This theme continues throughout the Old Testament. Um, think about it. In the book of uh, Exodus, when God's people are enslaved in Egypt, when they're experiencing hundreds of years of oppression at the hand of the mighty Egyptians, uh, we read this story last week in Exodus chapter 3. God appears to Moses and calls Moses to deliver his people. God appears to him as what? A burning bush, right? 
And then, as God's working through Moses and enacting the plagues to redeem and rescue his people from the land of Egypt, do you remember the ninth plague? Darkness in the land of Egypt. But in the area where the Hebrew people, where the Israelites lived, there was light. Do you see? The presence of God. God himself, there's light. And then God leads his people out of Egypt. And they're able to travel and run from the Egyptians, even at night, because God led them as what? A pillar of fire. A pillar of fire. Light throughout Scripture, from beginning to end, symbolizes for us God's presence, the presence of God. And here's why this is, oh, this is such good news. And this is the thing that can give you courage to walk into vulnerability, to experience exposure, to risk even giving up and losing your own life because you know that there's life on the other end. Because light and life, here in John chapter 8, throughout the book of John, go hand in hand. We have a God who desires to know us fully. Like for there to be no hiding, for there to be no unexplored dark corners. We have a God who desires and invites us to be fully known. Yet we have a God who also promises us his presence in the midst of that. You can be fully known and fully loved. This fear of abandonment, of rejection, of betrayal that we all have because we all have stories and we've experienced those things before, the promise of Scripture is that we have a God who wants to know us fully and love us deeply. Isn't that good news? Psalm 1611 says, In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. And the psalmist calls this the path of life. Life in the presence of God, where there's fullness of joy, where there are pleasures forevermore. This is life, being fully known, leaving no stone unturned, being fully honest, fully transparent, owning your story, and yet experience, experiencing not the rejection of God, but the embrace and the love and the life and the presence of God. Jesus didn't run away from the darkness. Jesus ran into the darkness. You can be honest with even the darkest parts of your life and heart. Let me close by sharing just a little bit of my own story. So uh, I became a Christian when I was in high school. And uh, so that was a significant season for me. And then when I was in college, it was, it was another significant season for me uh, when I experienced new depths of intimacy with God. Uh, and it happened like this. Um, I was a sophomore in college, and I had uh, sweet mates. Do you remember sweets? Like, I had a room with a roommate, and then we shared a bathroom, and then these guys lived next door to us. Uh, so we were sweet mates. And I had sweet mates who really, really loved Jesus. Um, who really, really know God and worship Him. One of these guys was, was a youth director at a local church, 
and he came into my room one Wednesday afternoon, and he said to me, hey, tonight I'm teaching this passage of Scripture, Ephesians chapter 2, and I'm so fired up about it. I'd, I'd love to read it for you. I was, I was a Christian at this point, so I'm like, yeah, that sounds great. Read it for me. And uh, he read this passage in Ephesians chapter 2, but he read it with like an uncomfortable uh, amount of passion. <laughs> Do you know? Uh, like, you've seen preachers before. You've encountered people who just, they're really passionate, and that's a good thing. But sometimes it can, at least for, maybe it's just me, sometimes it can make me feel a little uncomfortable. You know, like it's just me and this guy in my dorm room, and he is just, just going for it, just yelling. Uh, Ephesians chapter 2, you were dead in your trespasses and sins, but God being rich in mercy, he's, he's going for it. And so I'm missing a lot of what he's saying just because I'm so focused on the awkwardness of the moment. Like I'm not able to be present because it's, it's just a little bit uncomfortable. Um, and so he leaves my room and I'm like, man, he was fired up about Ephesians chapter 2. It sounded unfamiliar to me. Let me open up my Bible and read what he, what he had to say and what Paul has to say. And so I read this passage in Ephesians 2. Uh, man, and it was so rich. Like, I was dead in my, my sin, but God, being rich in mercy because of his great love for us, made us alive in Christ Jesus. Whew. And I was overwhelmed. My heart was led to worship, and that happened for about a semester. I was just, I just loved the Lord so deeply and just wanted to enjoy his presence. Um, and so now it's years later, and that's like about the deepest depth that I've experienced. And so sometimes, if I'm really honest, I wonder, like, is that all? Is that all? Like, that's really good and rich. And I've had such sweet times of worship, sweet times of reading my Bible and praying and worshiping with you all. Uh, and just, it, it's been good, it's been sweet, it's been rich. There's intimacy there, and I'm grateful for it. Um, there's one author I read recently who talks about the phases of the Christian life, and he kind of paints it in a circle. And uh, the first phase is conversion, where you first hear about Jesus, and you decide to believe in Jesus, like Paul says in Romans chapter 10. And then we experience uh, discipleship. We learn a lot. We grow. Exactly what happened to me at Delta State University that Wednesday in my sophomore year. Like I'm just, I'm learning, and my mind is being flooded with all this good truths about Jesus and who He is and how much He loves me. Um, and then we're led to serve people. Like that goes in, and then it goes back out, and that's so good. So years later, I moved to Memphis to work in the nonprofit world at SOS, uh, serving the least of these in some of Memphis's most impoverished neighborhoods, and I work for a church. Like, I enjoy serving people, um, but next, what this author says is that there's a wall. There's the wall, and most Christians experience these first few phases of the Christian life, and that's good and rich, and deep, and you experience a lot of depths in your intimacy and in your walk with the Lord. But over the past year, as, as you all know, um, we and I have encountered a wall. Um, the author in the book talks about how you break through the wall when you walk through a dark night of the soul, when it doesn't even feel like dawn is here yet. Like, it's just it's just dark, pitch black darkness. 
And that's what we, and that's what I've experienced over the last year as a church, as a follower of Jesus. And so the last year in my story has been me digging deep. Like me looking back at my story. And what I found is that looking back has allowed and is allowing me to move forward. And so I've, like I've dug into my story and man, what are the, what are the tragedies and painful experiences that I've encountered in my life that, that have shaped me and who I am? I've dug into who I am as, as a person, as a human, and how God has wired me, uh, particularly for me and for many of you, the Enneagram has been really helpful for me, and I've found that I identify mostly as an Enneagram 3, and uh, I don't know that that's Josh Cosby, 9, yeah. Uh, and so what I found is that, man, I am such a performer, and I love like to impress people, and I want you to desperately to be okay with me. So much so that I can live as a chameleon, a chameleon, and uh, I can live with sort of half-truths. And so I've kind of been uncovering who I am and living truthfully with other people about where I'm at. And what I've discovered as I've walked through this is newer and richer depths in my relationship with Jesus. Like, there is more. There is more than what I experienced years ago as a sophomore at Delta State University. There's more. And there's more for you too. In your presence, God, there is fullness of life. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. And I so desperately want you to experience the life that comes through the light of Christ, shining in the darkest and most uncomfortable places in your heart, taking you even into a dark night of the soul. And so my hope for you this morning is that you could be honest and take the next step. Um, Whenever you experience a really dark room and you're trying to walk through the dark room, this happened to me this morning. It was dark. Uh, No one in my family was up. I was trying to be quiet and not turn on lights. I didn't want to like step on a toy and trip and knock things down. And so I'm walking through a dark room and what do you do? What did I do this morning? (laughs) Pull out my flashlight because we all carry a flashlight in our phones, in our pockets. Isn't that crazy? Um, You're walking through darkness and you pull out your flashlight and just a little beam of light can shine. And my prayer for you is like that little beam of light can shine and there can just be a little more life that you experience, even this morning, even this morning. And so the next step is to shine a light. Let the light of Christ shine where it maybe has not shone before. Um, Whether it's just you and the Lord, like you just praying to him, like, Lord, maybe there are dark places. Help, Help me to... Discover what's there. Would you shine in these dark places? Maybe it's you sharing with a friend, like, hey, here's a dark place in my life that has yet to be exposed, and I'd love to share with you. Actually, I wouldn't love to, but I will, and it's really scary, so let's go have coffee later. Maybe it's you just spending some time journaling and for the first time writing, writing down that thing that has never seen the light of day. If you want people to pray with you, pastors, our prayer team members will be uh, on either side up here, and we'd love to pray for you this morning. 
because I want you to experience the life that's found in the light of Christ Jesus, our Lord.